In 2008, scientists studying human brain scans and neurological pathways confirmed what many anthropologists, biologists, and probably anybody who's gone to school or worked a job in their life long suspected. Our brains are hardwired to discern hierarchical authority. That is, we've got this specific circuitry in our brains that's completely attuned to who's in charge in a room and where we sit on that social status ladder of authority and significance. Chances are, if you work a job and you're not self-employed, that you probably have an org chart, an org chart that attempts to lay out where you're situated in your company's hierarchy. But hierarchies don't just exist in corporate settings, they exist in family structures, schools, friends groups, uh, churches, and obviously in governments. And we're deeply subconsciously aware of where our acceptance level and authority level sits in each of these social groups. But we can see, even if we have a basic elementary reading level of the New Testament, we can see that something unique and different is happening as followers of the way of Jesus are subverting and inverting the typical norms for these hierarchical structures, the typical norms of the social status ladder games that we play. There's something unique about the picture John has in Revelation, the picture of a slain lamb enthroned as ruler of the cosmos. So in today's episode, we're gonna talk about how the way of Jesus interacts with our basic, perhaps even primitive understanding of how we should relate to each other in social groups. We're gonna talk about the upside down nature of the kingdom of God as it relates to hierarchical structures. And we're gonna zero in our focus on Matthew's gospel in particular, as this is one of the major themes of Matthew's writing and his portrayal of Jesus. My name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. This podcast is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's episode to find out how you can get involved. So at the top of today's show, I talked about a study that was released in 2008 where you've got uh, scientists studying human brain scans and neurological pathways to search for evidence of um, evidence of our brain's ability to discern hierarchical authority. That 2008 study showed that we are even more psychologically motivated by the possibility of a slight rise or fall in the hierarchy of our social group than we are by the possibility of even winning or losing money. <laughs> and so you think about how primal this instinct is. And it's not even something we are consciously aware of. Our brain actually perceives that we are moving downward or upward uh, on this social status ladder uh, in ways that we're not even totally conscious of. We pick up on all of these subtle cues. And when we move, let's say upward or downward on a social status ladder, it can trigger immense... Um, dopaminergic and serotonergic responses in our dopaminergic and serotonergic systems. A downward move, or even a perceived, I should say, downward move on the social status ladder can trigger major 
mental health crises like anxiety and depression. Biologists have actually shown that in the animal kingdom, there are many species of social animals who actually come down with cardiovascular issues or demonstrate anxiety and depression-like symptoms if they are low on their social status ladder. Just as a quick aside, you know, this is one of the reasons why over the past 16 months or so that social distancing, even working from home, has been particularly difficult on people for reasons that have little to do with the virus itself. You and I, we are fine-tuned to pick up on uh, truly an uncountable number of cues from people throughout our day. Whether you are at a workplace, whether you are in high school or college or grad school, whether you are at a church, whether you're hanging out with people in your neighborhood, wherever you are, there are these cues, these cues that we are not even, again, I want to make this clear, we are not always consciously assessing a room and going, where do I sit in this social status ladder? It's, the program runs much deeper than that. These cues signal to us our level of acceptance in the group. And what happens in what has happened in the last 16 months to so many people is they have cut out so many of those social interactions. Um, In a lot of cases, for many people, they cut them out pretty much cold turkey. You went from having maybe a, a job where you're working in an office, where you're interacting with people all the time, or maybe, again, for those that are still doing some form of schooling, You're engaging with your professors and peers and classmates on a regular basis. And then all of a sudden, wham, (laughs) that there's a wall that has been built and it has cut you off from that social interaction that you're pretty accustomed to. What happens when you cut off that input cold turkey is you are going to experience an immense sense of, uh, of, of feeling disoriented. You will feel more likely, more than likely, you will feel more symptoms of anxiety or depression. And that's because you are not getting the positive social cues that you need as a social animal to, de- to give you the cues that you are accepted, that you have a place in, in the social status, in the ordering of a social group. When you go through periods like this, what ends up happening is you get in your brain, essentially, you kind of picture like on the dashboard of your car, that check engine light that says, hey, there's something wrong with your vehicle. When you have moments like this, extended periods of time of isolation, your brain starts turning on all of these check engine lights and starts saying, hey, there's something going wrong here and you need to address it. And that's what makes even, you know, sort of the simulated community connection things that we've devised like Zoom calls and, you know, online school, et cetera, social media interactions. You can have all of those that you want, but we did not evolve for um, through social media interaction. We did not develop this deep sense of needing each other through, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of social media interaction. So getting a like on your tweet or getting someone to retweet you or you get a comment on your Facebook, on your Facebook page or on your Instagram page, even though that does in some sense, signal to you an affirmation of where you sit in the social status ladder, 
it is not the same as the way your brain has been programmed to function. Your brain has been programmed to function for real life. And, I, you know, those interactions are real life too. But I'm talking about face-to-face where you can pick up on all of the nonverbal cues that we so deeply depend on. So you go without that. And even if you substitute a bunch of digital social media interaction or even a Zoom call, it's still going to be tough because it's not the same as the way we have been programmed to function. So this is really, really important to help you maybe understand, even just as a side note, why maybe some of you have experienced some increased levels of anxiety or depression, or you just feel like you're in a dark night of the soul. A lot of it is just because of our isolation. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a bit of a side, but it's an important one, okay? We are hardwired to organize ourselves into social groups. And inevitably, as we organize into social groups, in order for the group to function, there's designation of roles and duties that happens in any social group. And and this can happen in a myriad of ways. We're not going to talk about the ways in which different different duties and roles become um, doled out within a social group. All I want to focus in on, though, is the inevitable forming of hierarchical structures that emerge when we spend time in any social group. This is, there's no escaping this. I, I know there's, there's a bit of like this strange utopian, like false utopian vision of the world that I, I hear from a lot of people my age and younger, this like world that has no hierarchies where, where everybody is equal and it just doesn't make sense. This is not the same thing that we're going to talk about today as the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus does unique things to hierarchical structures, but it doesn't do away with them. Hierarchical structures are inevitable because you have to divvy out roles and responsibilities in a social group for people to even survive, <laughs> you know? You just think on a basic level, like in a family structure, who's cooking the dinner, you know? Sometimes that's, you know, just one person in a married couple. Sometimes that those duties are split, but those duties have to be divvied out and negotiated together. And then what en- inevitably ends up happening is you do have some sort of hierarchical structure, in that family group, you know, this is all of you have experienced it. I I don't need to explain it to you. So as we uh, realize that we are hardwired to organize ourselves into hierarchical structures, and we have these finely tuned senses of who the authority figures are, this is another thing that is really, really clear. We are fine. We have these fine tuned, most people, um, not everybody has perhaps the same level of perceptivity, uh, perception. But when we walk into a room, there are all sorts of cues that we pick up on. Some of them are part of the innate human experience. Um, There are certain things that seem to translate across time and culture, but we also have these sorts of cultural cues. And probably in most ways, we pick up on the cultural cues, which are expressions of our universal human nature. The cultural cues that signal to us, hey, this guy or gal, they're the one that sits atop the hierarchical structure in this group. 
And it's really easy in most cases for most people to walk into a room, a boardroom, you walk into a classroom, you even walk into a church. And oftentimes the room itself will be organized in a particular way to give everybody in the room the cue as to who's the person on top of the social status ladder, at least in that particular moment, in that particular room. So if you walk into a boardroom, right, um, the CEO has a particular place that CEO is going to sit at the table. It might typically be the head of the table, right? Uh, when you walk even into a church, you know, the pastor is behind a pulpit more than likely, or, you know, maybe you've ditched the pulpit and you kind of just do the, well, I'm sitting on a stool talking to you. You're still more than likely elevated on a platform. Even churches that have tried to move away from the theater um, sort of styling of a room where you have an elevated stage and people sitting lower than people. I know even some places that have moved to doing worship in the round. That's still a visual cue as to who is in, at least in this particular setting, in this particular time, the person or persons that are atop the hierarchy structure. Because you organize the room even in a circle, what's the center of the circle mean? You know, that's the bullseye. That's the target. There's a clear delineation there. Um, and so we, we pick up on these things. And, and some of them are, you know, what we might say more attached to universal human nature. Like oftentimes, not always the case. You can walk in a room and perhaps the person in the room that's the tallest, that has the most commanding body presence, you know, they. They, they, they speak with, with a particular confidence and bravado. They have a physical presence to them. We all pick up on that sort of stuff. You know, you walk into a room and you see a guy that's built like, you know, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, or maybe they're the best dressed or the most confident person. It's oftentimes a sign that that person, we pick up on it really quickly, that person is a top of the social status ladder, that hierarchical structure, at least within that particular group. When you walk into a room, you are subconsciously scanning for these details all the time. And a lot of these cues that determine who's treated as an authority figure can be pretty primitive, and they can be driven by survival instincts. For example, you know, when I walk in the room, is this guy that's built like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, could he kill me with his bare hands? If so, I'm probably going to need to give him a little bit of my time and attention. Or could I lose my job to this person? Could they throw me in prison? Could they humiliate me to the point in which I lose my status with my peers? What happens if I don't defer to this person? We are scanning for that stuff all the time. Now, what happens when these smaller social groups interact and are networked together? Well, what ends up happening is you get an even larger hierarchical authority structure. We could stick with church, for example. Churches often, Protestant churches are organized, certainly be, uh, among local churches, uh, and then you have um, perhaps like a regional conference that's a part of a larger denomination, and you might have the president of that particular denomination. Or if you're in a different context, right, let's say Roman Catholic, 
Um, you have local parishes, but then you have the diocese and the archdiocese, and you have this hierarchical structure that emerges even as smaller, more local groups interact and network together. This is inevitable. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Again, there are some, to me, some strange pie in the sky sorts of, I don't even see them as functional <laughs> attitudes about a, high, a, a world that has no hierarchy. To me, a world that has no hierarchy has no functional organization to it. The hierarchical nature of it is not inherently wrong. It's not inherently wrong. It's just part of it. Are there more optimally functional and ordered ways that God has designed us to interact in social groups together? Yes, I believe there is. And I believe the way of Jesus challenges and ends up inverting some of our expectations of what a functional hierarchical structure should look like. Let's talk for a bit about the hierarchical authority structure in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, if you were just an average Jewish Joe on the outskirts of Jerusalem, you were pretty locked into this complex structure of authority. It's different than ours, but there's obviously, again, because this is a a universal, a human universal, um, you can see some patterns here of similarity as well. So, In Jesus' day, in the first century, the Romans were the masters of making it clear that they were the ones in charge. They had down to a science (laughs) uh, how to touch that like primal nerve of fear, the, the deep fear that everyone carries of being harmed or being killed by another. And they knew they were masters at playing on that nerve and playing on those fears, and and wielding power and authority in some pretty incredible ways to get people to stay in line with the order that they wanted to impose upon the world. In first century Israel-Palestine, there were other hierarchical authorities that you had to be aware of as well. It wasn't just the Romans. In Jesus' day, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes and elders, and, and from among the most important of those groups, and they had their own hierarchical structure and authority, emerging from those groups, you had the Sanhedrin, and they were the highest local governing body. They all know their place in the pecking order, though. They keep their authority. The Sanhedrin keeps their authority. The Pharisees keep their authority. Whatever little allotment of authority they've been given, they know that their authority is dependent on their obedience to their powerful Roman bosses. They know their place in the pecking order. They know that, you know, Herod knows that Herod, you know, Herod the Great knows who his boss is, right? Herod the Great knows that he's. He's answering to the local governor, the Roman governor, right? Uh, and the Roman governor knows that he ultimately answers to Caesar, right? There does seem to be some evidence that, um, you know, Pontius Pilate was 
was concerned about whether or not if he didn't quell a potential rebellion by what, what was emerging in, in, in the region with this Jesus of Nazareth, that it might cost him his job, who knows. So these, these people know their place in the pecking order, but it does get a little bit more complicated than, than, than that, um, as, as it does with any institution. You see, like, you as an individual, you might be frightened if you're in, alone in a room with a guy that's, like, built like the rock, but he gives off Hitler vibes, you know, just like, they're not just big, but they might be crazy, they might be inherently malevolent in their, their predisposition, but the tricky thing is, right, if you get enough people in the room with you who are tired of this big, mean dude being in charge, eventually enough of you can, get, can create momentum strong enough to dispose of that leader. You get enough people together, they're going, hey, what's the worst that can happen if we all try to team up and take this guy out? And that's how revolutions brew, right? The revolutions, and this is the, this is the dance that even in, you know, you think of the, the Roman Empire or you think of, you know, d- traditional monarchies and the mon- monarchical system, the king has to be, or the emperor or the queen has to be acutely aware of their polling numbers, if you will. Their, I should say maybe their approval numbers with even the lowest of the peasants. Because if you get enough of them banded together, you could have a coup on your hands. And this is the case even in the military, right? Militaries are obviously one of the most easiest places to point to hierarchical structure in. And you have to obey orders in not just the, you know, the U.S. military, but this has always been the case for essentially as long as a military has exist, existed. You know your place in the pecking order. You obey orders. But, you know, let's say a captain of a, of a naval ship, they, they have to be acutely aware that if they continue to make poor decisions, they could end up with a coup on their hands. And so there's this interesting interplay. The people at the bottom of the social status ladder are not completely powerless. If enough of them band together and their strength is in their numbers, what you can end up having is a successful revolution, a displacing or disposing of the king or the emperor or the queen or whoever sits atop that hierarchy. So this is a, this is a real, there's a dance here that has to happen. And, and, and the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus's day, they have to play this game and they have to play this game well. If they don't want to drop in the social hierarchy or even worse, end up getting crucified by their Roman bosses, they have to placate the tens of thousands of people beneath them enough to not let any ideas of revolution start to brew, but they also have to do that while making the Romans happy. And that is, that's the tricky political intrigue of the first century world that Jesus inhabits. And it's typically the, the, the most interesting political intrigue that you find in any, um, in any sort of fiction or nonfiction story of of subterfuge and revolution, there is this interesting political dance that becomes really, really complex. 
So this is where I want to zero in on Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, one of the major themes in Matthew's gospel is this theme of authority. Matthew, from the opening pages of the book, is communicating that Jesus should be viewed by the readers or the original audience as the one enthroned above all other hierarchical authorities in the world. How does he do this? Well, first he starts his gospel by giving a genealogy of Jesus's family tree to show, in particular, to show that Jesus is a descendant of Israel's greatest king, that it would be King David. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is being really intentional to that the original audience to show them, hey, this Jesus that you're about to hear the story of, or maybe you've probably already heard stories about him already, and I'm going to tell you my story. He, from the very get-go, is destined for greatness. He's showing a place of prominence and importance in the social hierarchy of the world, of the cosmos, even. In Matthew 2, that puppet King Herod, who was placed on his artificial throne in Jerusalem by the Roman powers, that King Herod, he's concerned that his authority is in jeopardy when the Magi show up to town. And they're, you know, they're following that star again, you know, wise men is a poor understanding of this. These are probably Persian astrologers, magicians. They're following a star that they would, that they believe would lead to the birth of the king of the Jews. So you can see this. That's Matt. We're in Matthew 2. In Matthew 3, the most popular prophet among the average people, those people on the bottom of the hierarchy that those on the top have to keep an eye on lest there be a revolution brewing. That popular prophet, John the Baptist, he is, again, perceived by some as a revolutionary threat to that religious hierarchy. This John the Baptist claims that he's nowhere near high enough, high enough pardon me, in the hierarchy of authority to even wear Jesus' sandals. And so you get a lot of revolutionary energy brewing around Jesus at this point in Matthew's telling of the story. Those in attendance at the baptism, what did they hear? They even heard the voice of God in heaven saying, this guy was his son. (laughs) So Jesus has got, at this point in Matthew's gospel, he's got a few things going his way, even if you think about hierarchical structures in the traditional, maybe even, dare I say, innate way, perhaps even sinful way, that we think about hierarchical norms. He's a descendant of David. King Herod's freaked out about him. You got Persian astrologer magicians making long trips because they think this guy is going to be a serious authority, even a king of the Jews. And you got the populist prophet out in the wilderness saying, Yeah, this is the guy. Oh, and to top it all off, the voice of God seems to be giving approval of this Jesus. So that sounds like, at this point, that you got a pretty solid resume for somebody that might come in and be capable of doing what normally is done when you want to displace someone at the top of the hierarchy. You got to do that through competition 
You got to do it through force. That's at least the way the Romans and most people thought about reorganizing and restructuring of hierarchical authority. So maybe this Jesus guy, you know, son of David, King Herod was freaked out. John the Baptist says, man, this is the guy, even the voice. Some people are saying they heard the voice of God saying this is his son. That's a pretty good and impressive resume to be someone that might come in and kick the butt of that big Roman bully. Matthew has this picture of Jesus as the supreme authority. And yet, as we see throughout Matthew's gospel from this point on, he's a supreme authority bound to disappoint people who are looking to win in this primitive, even, dare I say again, sinful game of power over hierarchical struggle. What if the authority of this Messiah is so drastically different, so powerful, but it's powerful in a way that seems so initially foreign to us that it requires us to drastically alter what we conceive of when we think of authority. Consider what happens in Matthew 4. Jesus doesn't take this positive, revolutionary momentum, his high polling and approval numbers with the people, and he doesn't do what a good revolutionary should have done at that point and just like marched on Jerusalem right after his baptism. No, he heads into the wilderness Where what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted by Satan. What was that final temptation from Satan? Satan tempts Jesus with authority over all the kingdoms of the world. All he has to do is bow down, you know, do it his way, demonstrate a posture of submissiveness. We see this throughout different human cultures and civilizations, postures of submissiveness that we demonstrate to our superiors, whether it's bowing, whether it's kneeling, all sorts of different things, whether it's in some cases standing when somebody important enters the room. You see this in the animal kingdom and especially among mammals as well. All Jesus has to do is bow his knee. Do it Satan's way. But what comes next? After this interesting interaction as Jesus emerges from the wilderness, the momentum actually hasn't dissipated even after his 40-day absence. He comes out of the wilderness and the crowds are still smothering him wherever he goes. This seems like it still could be an opportune time for Jesus to unleash that revolutionary manifesto. The crowds are ready for it. And so here they are, they're gathered. Now we're heading into Matthew 5, right? They're going, Jesus, what's the game plan? What's your manifesto here? We think you might be the guy. How are we going to do this thing? Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Really? Jesus, are you serious? We had all this energy brewing around you. We think you could be the guy to displace that Roman bully to upset the whole corrupt religious hierarchical structure. And you're telling us the meek are going to inherit the earth. This is a radical manifesto, but it's not radical in the sense that 
you know, the sort of zealot revolutionary energy would have liked it to have been. Jesus's manifesto is revolutionary. It's, you know, think of Matthew's language here. Matthew says that Jesus went up the mountain, and this instantly would have reminded the Jewish audiences who would have been listening or, or reading Matthew's gospel in that first century, they, they would instantly draw comparisons to Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the law. And you think of all the times in, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you this, a phrase, again, it's repeated throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's contrasting Jesus's teaching and saying, hey, you know what? I know you heard Moses say this, but I'm one up in Moses. I, I'm in a different level of hierarchical authority, even beyond Moses. Wow. That's a pretty, uh, pretty bold statement. When Jesus gets done with this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew ends the section by saying, quote, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. End quote. That's Matthew 7, verse 28 through 29. The crowd in attendance was catching something that day. Even though they didn't fully understand it, Jesus' own disciples didn't understand it, but they sensed something. They sensed a qualitative difference in Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority was qualitatively different, not just quantitatively different. It was qualitatively different than the authority that people had been used to seeing. This brings us to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to focus pretty much the rest of our attention here. Matthew chapter 8 begins with the healing of someone in one of the lowest conceivable social positions in the Jewish worldview, a leper. Lepers are so low in this hierarchical game that they're actually forced to live outside of the general population in their own depressing little leper neighborhood. This was extreme, permanent social distancing, right? The, the greater your status, the more you would intentionally distance yourself from a leper. Coming into physical contact with a leper made you unclean and lowered your social status to their level. So the crowds are shocked when this Jesus, the one with all this messianic authority buzzing around him, the one they notice is qualitatively different than their other authority figures, when he touches a leper and heals him, it's saying something. It's, on, one, on the one hand, it's a, it's a mind-blowing display of the qualitatively different kind of authority of Jesus of Nazareth. With a word and a touch, this horrific, uncurable disease is vanquished. And on the other hand, the crowd is still probably scratching their head because this sort of behavior doesn't fit any of the normal, primitive expectations of what power and authority looks like. Jesus just lowered himself in the social status ladder to that of a leper by touching the leper. And yet there is something profoundly, qualitatively different about Jesus' power in that he is healing an incurable disease. 
That's important to note. This leper cries out, Lord. And this is actually the first, first time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is referred to as Lord, a word which can mean master, but also in the domain of Roman politics, it was a title applicable to the Roman emperor. The phrase, Caesar is Lord, was a well-known expression throughout the empire in the first century. Knowing this makes our scene that I want to take a look at in Matthew 8, the rest of Matthew 8 here, all the more revolutionary. Think about this. The leper is the first person to name Jesus as Lord in Matthew's gospel. So if you're actually reading along uh, in Matthew 8, you can see this. uh, Let's see. I think we're picking up here somewhere in the neighborhood, verse 5 and 6. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. What did the centurion say? The centurion said, continue on there, Lord, a Roman centurion just called this Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, a title culturally reserved for the emperor. That's a big deal. The centurion is calling him master. The Roman centurion is calling him a title that he could have maybe even gotten himself in some trouble (laughs) if other centurions were around hearing him. You know, if someone in authority above him heard him use this title for a traveling Jewish rabbi, it's a pretty big deal. Lord, he said, we're in verse 6, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Here we have in this scene an outsider to the Jewish audience. This guy is a foreign enforcer of Roman hierarchy, and he's a Gentile. As a centurion, this guy, he would have commanded up to a hundred of the world's greatest soldiers at that time. The guy works for the big Roman bully that most of the crowd is probably expecting this Jesus, the Messiah, to end up mopping the floor with at some point. And here this guy is calling Jesus Lord. Now, does the centurion have perfect theology? Probably not. Is he a good synagogue-attending, Torah-believing Jew? No. Yet, in a way, this guy demonstrates a faith in Jesus that shows he might have actually got what all the Old Testament was pointing to even better than the religious leaders who had all their Bible verses memorized and never missed a week at church. You know, they wouldn't have called it church, obviously, but you get the point. This centurion knows hierarchical authority, and somehow he's got this gift of faith that's been given to him, and he's able to discern how the ultimate authority of Jesus works in a way that is both similar to his experiences of authority and power, and yet again, qualitatively different in how it is applied. This Lord, this King of Kings, this Caesar above all Caesars, he applies his authority 
to overthrow oppressive spiritual forces that attempt to usurp God's good ordering of creation. He uses his authority to heal the sick, to touch lepers, to forgive sins, to welcome outcasts, even those like the centurion who are supposed to be your enemy. Jesus, I I mean, this is the way that Jesus so counters all of the different narratives that I feel are uh, so often at work in our cultural dialogue. Jesus isn't saying like, hey, centurion, you know, um, I can't do anything for you because you're too high on the social status ladder and you, you know, you're going to have to give up all of your position. He doesn't, he doesn't even do that. He actually just commends him. He heals him. He's welcoming an outcast. And, and the outcast, the outcast doesn't just fit into some neat, um, golly, like, you know, Marxist categories where it's like, well, all we have are people with property and people without property, P- people who control the means of production, people who don't control the means of production. It's not like that. The centurion is an outcast, even though he's technically fairly high on the larger social status ladder, he was in need of grace. This is the qualitatively different authority of Jesus. Faith in this kind of Lord, it's an upside down kind of faith. It's not just faith in more quantities of the same primitive fear-based hierarchical authority. It's a faith in a king of a qualitatively different kind of kingdom, one not governed by rat races for social status or through fear or manipulation. This is what the prophet Isaiah means when he prophesied centuries before about the coming kingdom of God and the rule of the Messiah. When he wrote in Isaiah 40, chapter 4, quote, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. If we're honest, it's harder to have faith in the way of Jesus being the ultimate authority in the cosmos when we're living in these times of tragedy and suffering and fear and culture war. But the original audience hearing or reading Matthew's gospel were living in uncertain times too. They were living in a culture war that, though they didn't have social media and 24-7 cable news, it was probably just as, if not honestly, really much more intense than what we're living through. Just take a look at what happened, uh, you know, a generation after Jesus' death and resurrection. The Romans come to town and they destroy Jerusalem over Jerusalem's culture war, (laughs) culture wars um, sentiments in the year 70 AD. So it's been over a generation since Christ's death and resurrection and the audience that's reading this, probably at least a generation later, you know what? As they're looking around the world, that Roman bully was still sitting atop the hierarchy of the world, just as powerfully as, it, as they were a generation ago. And you're looking at this and you're going, man, I'm not seeing these valleys getting raised up and these mountains don't seem to be getting made low either. Going around claiming that Jesus is Lord when it seems like Caesar is still Lord, it feels pretty ludicrous. And yet, there is still this evidence of the qualitatively different authority of Christ being experienced by those early Christian communities. Jew and Gentile, 
normally bitter enemies, living as brother and sister together in Christ, the sharing of possessions, the healing of the sick. Early Roman observers of Christian community, they didn't get it. They called, they called as outsiders looking in on these, this strange gathering of people across socioeconomic boundaries and a, 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 across cultural differences, gathered sharing of all they had together, worshiping together. The, some of these outsiders, Roman outsiders, looked at them and they called their gatherings love feasts. And, and they thought, you know, as they heard these stories of ecstatic experiences being shared by different nationalities and social groups, who also were telling the story in a way that said that they were feasting on the body and blood of Christ, it seemed really weird to the Romans. A social hierarchy governed by selfless love and voluntary sacrifice, not by fear and threats? That's different. Qualitatively different. As time progressed, these people who were pledging allegiance to Jesus as Lord actually seemed to pose a threat to the Roman bully, but it wasn't because they were secretly brewing up some violent revolution, they weren't storming the capital, <laughs> they weren't out there to try to kick the big Roman bully's butt as a quantitatively more powerful kind of the same type of hierarchical authority. No, that's not how they played this game. Instead, their faith in an upside-down king of an upside-down kingdom made them look like a weird, upside-down people. And when you're living for a day when every valley shall be exalted, those threatened by the loss of their status, as the valleys are raised up, will likely try to stop the expansion of that kind of kingdom. But I want to encourage you with what I believe to be the central hope of that Christian message. The way of Jesus, the way of the cross, always looks like a failure in the moment. The Apostle Paul admitted it looks like foolishness to those stuck in primitive sinful mindsets. But the way of the cross is vindicated by the resurrection. This is that mustard seed way of the kingdom of God Jesus was talking about. You can't microwave a mustard seed and turn it into a tree. You plant and you trust the slow growth of God. It's a cathedral building kind of faith. It's something you start building in your life knowing that you won't see completed in your lifetime. It's not a faith that you conjure up. And you can see the scientists show you the brain scans. They can show you the behavioral studies. We have inherited a specific wiring. You want to call it a sinful nature. You want to call it our basic evolutionary appetites, whatever you want to call it. We've inherited a wiring that predisposes us to reject the qualitatively different lordship of Jesus. We don't come into the world just thinking that's the way this thing works. No, what we actually have to have is a transformation of our natures. We don't like even work our way up to a level of that kind of faith. Or That's not how it works. He descends to give it to us. We can be tempted in these days, and there's a lot of temptations surrounding Christians right now who are completely immersed still in the culture war. We can be tempted to follow the way of power, to play Caesar's game, to be driven by fear, to fight tooth and claw, to preserve our status or to gain more worldly authority, to cozy up to politicians in order 
to get our way, to pick it, to storm capitals, whatever you might want to do. But Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if we believe that, we have the great and precious calling to bear witness to that in the world by modeling this upside-down kingdom in our communities. I want to thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you're finding anything I talked about today to be helpful, or maybe you even have a disagreement with the perspectives that I've shared, I invite you to reach out to me. You can participate in the discussion forums that we have for each episode on Patreon. Um, anybody that supports at any level there get, can have access to these discussion forums. There's also things like monthly Q&A episodes, or at least close to monthly, <laughs> depending on what kind of questions come in. We also have opportunities for group discussions on Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. So you can check out that stuff by uh, finding the link in the description below. I want to give an extra special thanks to those supporters on Patreon who are giving so generously. People like Clint, Jesse, Spencer, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, and Taylor S. Thank you all 